All right, thanks. Thanks, Brooke. Uh, so good to be here. Uh, get your Bible, and we're not going to go to Mark yet. We're in a long study in the Gospel of Mark. But once you get a Bible, go to Exodus chapter 33 is where we're going to start. A couple of things that we're going to need to see before, um, before we get to Mark 6 to help it make sense. So we'll wait. Exodus 33. It's Genesis is the first book. Exodus is book number two, or numero dos for you Spanish-speaking friends. That's about all I got, but there you go. <laughs> John, I heard your laugh from here. Way to go. Um, Exodus 33 is where we'll be. And um, just, just as you go in there, we're going to pray and we'll jump in. Would appreciate your prayers. We had a team leave yesterday for Uganda, and we're going to preach the gospel. I leave tomorrow to join them in Arua, the north uh, part of Uganda, and then in Budo, which is a suburb of the largest city, Kampala. And we'll be there for two weeks preaching the gospel in schools, uh, out in the marketplace doing open-air evangelism. I think there'll be 20, 30, 40,000 people who will be exposed to the gospel in the next couple of weeks, and we want you to pray. Uh, if you'd like to follow on Twitter or Instagram or anything, just follow mine. Many of the team members will do it, but I'll, I'll update some photos and whatnot. Uh, so Jose Zayas, no spaces. It's not H-O-S-E. I'm not a hose. It's J-O-S-E-Z-A-Y-A-S. Um, I didn't think that was all that funny, but there you go. Uh, just on Twitter, Instagram, do my name. Um, I will add you as a friend and, and pray. I, will, I don't want more followers. I just want more people praying. So if that helps, great. All right? Well, let's pray. We'll jump in. Lord, we love you. We, we're grateful that we get to worship you, Lord. It's just been good to be with friends and sing songs that resonate with our soul because our heart is leaning in towards you. We want what you want. We want to be transformed by you. We want to think like you, act like you, live like you, and we confess that we don't know how in full, so we need your help tonight. As we open your scriptures, Jesus Christ, illumine our minds. Help our eyes to see what's in the text. Help our ears to hear the things that are important to apply, and then give us the boldness to live it out. In Jesus' name, uh, amen. Amen. Uh, I said Exodus 33, I want us to pick up uh, in the early part of the story, Moses, man sent by God to deliver God's people, they go out, they're delivered from slavery, death, bondage, and then they begin to complain, and they, and they end up worshiping other gods. So God has a people, and they end up abandoning them pretty early in the story. They have just committed idolatry. They've gone against God, but Moses cries out on their behalf, and Moses wants to know the, the living God and help the people know the living God. And so he's on a mountain, and he's, and he's talking with God. And I want you to look at verse 18. We're jumping in the middle of the story, but this is going to be important. Exodus 33, 18. And um, Moses said to God, Now, show me your glory, glory. Show me who you are. God had been a mystery, like God's a mystery to many people today. And they saw God from a distance. And Moses is like, look, i got to lead the people. Show me who you are. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I'm going to have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. Interesting to note, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to show you goodness. And then he gives character traits. He's like, I'm merciful. I'm compassionate. He's trying to get Moses to see who he is, and the only way to do it is to describe what he's like and what he does. But he said, you cannot see my face, and, and he's using 
language that Moses understands. God is spirit, so he doesn't have a face like we do. You can't see the front of me, for no one may see me and live. God's not like us. Uh, And then verse 21, the Lord said, There's a place near me where you can stand on a rock, and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to hide you in there and cover you with my hand, so to speak, until I pass by. Then I'll remove my hand, and you'll see my back, but you must not see my face. Back is one of those weird things to translate. He's using human language. He's like, the place where I was, I'll, I'll... I'll give you a glimpse as I go by. I'm, I'm unlike you. But I'm, you want to know who I am? I'm going to show you. Now jump down to chapter 34, uh, verse 5, and we'll just see what God says. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood there with him, and proclaimed his name because he had previously said, I'll, I'll show you my name. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, and we did a whole series on this. This is going to sound familiar. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate And gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. At this, verse 8, Moses bows to the ground at once and worshiped the Lord. Now, uh, Moses, man of God, wants to see who God is. And look at what he sees. In a mountain, in a rock, it's hidden, it's mysterious, it's brief. He sees God's back where God was, and then he gets God's character traits. In order for Moses to know what God is like, he has to get his attributes. How do you get to know spirit? God is spirit. How do you know? You see what God is like, and then it gives a picture of who he is. Now, one more note. We, we got that one down. Go to the book of Job. Um, it's Job, but if you're new to the Bible, it's J-O-V. It looks like a job to me. Um, job, Job, verse uh, chapter 9. So you got go to the right. If you find Psalms, you've gone a little too far. So it's just to the left of Psalms. Psalms is a big, fat book in the Bible. But Job um, is just before that. Job, chapter 9. We're just setting up the tone for the story we're going to read tonight in Mark 6. And these two are going to help. Now, Job, um, we think it was one of the first uh, encounters in the scriptures. Uh, we think that Job is a really old uh, writing and an old narrative. And, and in it, in Job 9, all you need to know is he's describing God. And what is God like? So we got what God is like from Moses. Now look at what we get from Job. Job 9, verse 5. This is just some attributes of God. He moves mountains without their knowing it. And he overturns him in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. So all Job is saying, he's trying to describe God. He knows God by what he sees God do. Then verse 8. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. You could all translate it. You should also translate it. And walks or steps or moves on the waves of the sea. God walks on water. Now, we don't have time, but I could take you to Psalm 77. I could take you to Isaiah 51. There are all sorts of nuances throughout the Bible and the writings that God, how do you describe, how do you know who God is? God overrules, walks on water. 
Which is why, even if in Psalm 77, if you read it, you find that in describing the Exodus, that Moses, when he parted the Red Sea, the, the psalmist describes this way. You were walking on the waters, although we did not see your footsteps. So, so the people of God saw that God is one who moves waters. No one walks on water. No one moves water. God does. All right. Now, with that in mind, go to the New Testament. You're wondering, what are we doing? There is a plan, and I'm getting there. Mark 6. All right. Mark 6, and we're going to look through the text. So as you go in there, Moses is up on a mountain. God passes by. Job, describing God, he, he stops the sun from shining. He lights the stars. He moves mountains. He walks on water. And now we want to see what that has to do with what Mark is trying to do. Chapter 6, we picked up, we ended in verse 44. We'll pick it up in verse 45. Uh, we're just going to walk through the text and pull out some applications. Super famous story here. Most of you will already know this. It says immediately, that is immediately after he, he fed the 5,000 miraculously, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while Jesus dismissed the crowd. The, the nuance here, he made his disciples, is that he forced his disciples. So he does this great miracle. Thousands are fed with a few loaves of fish. He says to the boys, in the boat, get out of here. And Jesus takes care of the crowds. Why? It's going to come clear. Verse 46, after leaving them, so the disciples go out, the crowds disperse, he went up on a mountainside to pray. So we got a mountain. Jesus is with the Father. Moses is with Yahweh in the mountain. They're communing. They're talking. And now Jesus is up on a mountain. He's by himself like Moses was, and he's talking to the living God. Verse 47 says, that night the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. We think that Jesus is up on a hill and he can see the disciples. Why? It says he saw the disciples straining at the oars. Um, you, could, you could translate this tortured by the oars. They're out there and they're working feverishly because the wind was against them. So they're battling a headwind. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass them by. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost, and they cried out, duh, it's not in there, but you know, because they all saw him, and they were terrified. So what is going on here? Jesus up on the mountainside praying. He sees his disciples out there on the Sea of Galilee, and they're supposed to go uh, to the northeast from where they are. They're in the north. Supposed to go, I guess, from your direction. Northeast would be that way, right? i got to do it in reverse. So northeast is that way. And he sees them. And they're tortured by the oars. You remember when we read earlier in Mark 4, there was another encounter with Jesus in the sea? You remember? Last time Jesus is in the boat, huge hurricane comes in. Jesus is asleep. The disciples are like, get up, we're going to die. And he's like, what? Be still. Silence. And they got freaked out because they're like, even the winds and the waves obey him. Jesus, you're amazing. Now, another uh, encounter. This time, they're not going to die. Uh, he sees them. They're struggling because of a wind. is pushing them in the opposite direction. They're straining. They're, 
They're tortured by this work. It's 3 to 6 a.m., the NIV says, in the middle of the night or in the fourth watch of the night. It's 3 to 6 a.m. They've been working all night long trying to get to where Jesus said to go, and they're not there. So Jesus decides to come down from the mountain and, you know, no big deal, walk to where they are. So you're like, yeah, he's Jesus. Are you not amazed by this? I mean, again, we read this. Picture yourself hearing this for the first time. You've never met Jesus. You've been intrigued by the church. It's 30 years after Jesus is risen from the grave. You're in an assembly like this, and Mark gives you the account of Jesus stepping out of the water. Now, if you were a Jew, who is the one who walks on water? God is the one. That's why sometimes, because we only know part of the story, we miss some of the power. God is the one who oversees the wind, the waves. He puts the light into the stars. God, this is stuff that God does. We know God by what he does. Now, why is this important? Mark is not going to tell us that Jesus is God. He's not going to be that blunt. But like Moses of old and the early writers, what Mark is going to do, and when you read the gospel, you're like, well, well where does it really say that Jesus is God? What the writer does is he describes what only God can do, and he shows you Jesus doing it. It's subtle, but he is making a huge point. Only God walks on water, Job 9. Now Jesus is walking on the water, and he comes out to them, and notice the little nuances that we see here. Uh, look at the middle of verse 48. The wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he comes out, walking on the lake. He's about to do what? Pass them by. Exodus 33. Moses is up there. And what does Yahweh, the creator God, say to him? You can't see my face, but what are you going to do? You're going to go on the rock, and I am going to pass you by. What, what is not being implied here is that Jesus is going to say, hey, fellas, I'll beat you there, you know, 12 to 1, I got you. You know, he, he's, not, he's not saying, oh, guys, what's your problem? He's out there enacting what God had already done to Moses, the servant who is after God's heart. Remember, the other people are in rebellion, but Moses is faithful to worship God. Now the 12, they're faithful to follow Jesus. The crowds... They're fickle. The crowds come and go. But these 12 are faithful to follow Jesus. And so Jesus sees them up from the mountain. He comes down. In Exodus, God, the creator God swoops down and passes by Moses. And here in the same way, Jesus comes down from the mountain and he walks to his friends and freaks them out. They're all terrified. They, they, think, they think that they've seen a ghost. They cried out and says in verse 49, because they saw him, and yeah, they were terrified. Now immediately he spoke to them, and he said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Guys, now remember, Moses, like, God's like, you, you can't see me in my fullness. You'll see when I kind of pass by. And, and Moses was afraid, and Moses bows down, and Moses worships. And in the same way the disciples are afraid. Jesus, take courage. It is I. We'll get back to that. It is I is going to be significant, but we'll hold off. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into their boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed, which you would be too. Uh, and then 
for they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts were hardened. Now this is where it just gets intriguing. So Jesus comes to them, and Mark wants us to know, he goes, little, little narrator's help. Wind stops. Now they, they weren't in danger for their lives. They're just working hard, blown about. Jesus comes and helps. He stops it. They keep rowing. And Mark says, they didn't get what Jesus is up to. Jesus, they didn't understand the loaves. They didn't understand the significance. Uh, now, remember in the loaves, who had fed, humanly speaking, God's people in the desert? Who gave instructions about manna bread? Bible students? Who was it? Who was it? Chris in the front? Moses. Moses in the desert. Remember, Moses means God. God tells Moses, I'm going to provide food for my people. They're hungry. They're grumbling. I'm going to care for them. I love them. Moses says, God's going to rain bread from heaven. So last week, we, we saw that Jesus is doing greater than what Moses has done. Moses sees the living God, but Jesus is not just like a good leader. Jesus is greater than Moses. So Jesus feeds them, not just asking the Father. He takes the bread, he gives thanks, and multiplies it. Jesus does the miracle. Jesus does what only God can do. He feeds. And now Jesus does what only God can do. He walks on the water, and he, he passes by them. They're terrified, and he says, take courage, it is I. So Mark wants us to know, and this is good news for us, when God is at work, it doesn't mean you and I are going to get it early on. Sometimes we're slow, and that is all right. Now, uh, let's finish out the rest of the chapter, and we'll give some application. Verse 53. So when they crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret and anchored there. Where were the disciples going? It's not a trick question. Where, read it. Where were they going? Where? Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is in the northeast. They end up in Gennesaret, which is totally in the west. Intriguing. If you don't know the geography here, you, you, you miss it. They never got to where they were going. They're in Jesus said, go over towards Bethsaida. They never made it there, at least not yet. They end up in a totally other town because the wind had whipped them in the wrong direction. They land, and here's what happens. They anchored there, verse 54. As soon as they got out of the boat, the people recognized Jesus. So Jesus is famous everywhere. And they ran throughout the whole region. And then Mark gives us this summary statement. And they carried the sick mats to wherever they heard that he was. And wherever Jesus went, into the villages, the towns, the countryside. Gennesaret isn't a town, but it's, it's a region that is a few miles. Uh, so Jesus has, goes to town to town, village to village. And wherever he went, they placed the sick, on, uh, they placed the sick in the marketplaces and they begged Jesus to let them touch even the edge of his cloak. Back in chapter 4, if you've been in the study, um, Jesus, remember the tassels at the end of his prayer shawl, they were called the kanaf, and there were, was these Old Testament predictions, these prophetic predictions, when God sends his messengers that there will be healing in the, the wings, in the wind of his wings, or the edges of his cloaks, or in their prayer, Jews were the prayer shawl, and the edges had tassels, and they were called the kanaf, and, and there would be healing in them. So we saw in chapter 4, and this is review, this is good. 
In chapter 4, that Jesus heals, the lady touches. She's bleeding for 12 years. No one can fix her. She touches the edge of his cloak, his kanaf, she's healed. Now it's happening again all over the region. Wherever Jesus goes, there are encounters, there's power, and God is at work. Even though the disciples don't end up where they intended to go, Jesus does miracles, Jesus sets people free, and there's joy. Uh, now, now, what is this story about? Well, let's, let's just make it plain for us. A couple of things to think about if you're taking notes. Number one, this is a story about God. Mark wants us to know what God is like. And all throughout the gospel, we're going to get it again and again and again. God, and hear the wording, God is like Jesus. Well, you want to know what God is like? Jesus. It's not just that Jesus can tell you about God. If I want to know what the creator of the universe is like, I no longer have to guess. What we see throughout the scriptures, I'll give you a fancy term and then make it plain, is progressive revelation. Say it with me. Progressive. Oh, you just sound smart. All that means is that God progressively, bit by bit, in Genesis, we get the beginning of what God is like. He's a creator. He's a forgiver. He's just. He's fair. He's kind. He's a judge. He's a king. We get that early on. And all throughout, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you see that the more you go through, progressively, bit by bit, we get a clearer view of who God is. Now, Jesus in his coming and in the Gospels is the greatest revelation to us of what God is like. So Moses saw God in part. Wouldn't it be great to be on the mountain in the cleft? He's got his gear, you know. He's got his, like, uh, whatever free uh, water container. What is it, like, BPA free or whatever? You're like, whatever, so it doesn't mess up the environment. Like, you know, he's got his old thing. He's got his REI gear, and he's in there, and God passes by like, wow. But now, and this is huge, we have a greater understanding. We could have a greater insight than Moses as to who God is because Jesus is the greatest revelation of God. So God is like Jesus. So the story is not just about a couple of struggling guys and Jesus coming in your boat and fix your mess. It is about you and I getting a grip that if you want to know what God is like, you must know Jesus. That is the gospel. The good news is that Jesus isn't just a great teacher, but he is God's greatest revelation because God is like who? Jesus. So if you encounter Jesus, you are encountering the living God. Yes, they are separate. God is the Father, and there is Jesus the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. There is the triune God. It is a mystery. I, I admit it. We see that they are distinct and they are separate. But for our help and our benefit, if you want to know what God is like, all you have to do is uh, look at Jesus. Now, the story is about God. Why do I say that? Because if you look at Mark 6, and let's go back into the text, verse 50. Look at it with me. Look at verse 50. It says, Immediately Jesus spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Now the phrase there, it is I, is the phrase ego eimi in Greek. And it could simply mean in Greek, like, it is me. But interestingly enough, when God describes who he is in Exodus 33 and 34, 
he describes himself as the I am. Old Testament's written in Hebrew, but if you translate that from Hebrew into Greek, like we see Mark in Greek, you're going to get it's ego emi. So you could just say Jesus is saying like, it's me, guys. <laughs> wow, sorry. That was not Jesus. That was the sound system. But it would be a good time to repent. <laughs> you can't plan something that good. Ego emi. So, so I am. Jesus is saying, take courage. Now, notice the parallel. God passes by Moses. Jesus passes them by. But now we see something different. He doesn't show them where he was. For Moses, all he got was God passing. Now Jesus goes where? He goes right into the boat. This is a story about God. God is not just the God who reveals himself out from eternity and says down to Moses, Moses. Now he is the one who steps into our very circumstance and says, I am God, I am here. Ego and me. Take, that's why he can say, take courage. Why? Wind. Stop. Let's row. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus so that now, 2013, here in Hillsboro, if you want to know what God is like, you call on Jesus, and Jesus will say to you, just like he said to them, take courage no matter what you're going through, ego and me, I am here. The I am God is here in the person of Jesus. Do not be afraid. Moses was scared to death at the revelation of God, and now his disciples, they don't see the back of God. Hear me clearly. They see Jesus's face. This is huge. This is such good news for us who feel like Jesus is somewhere else. Ever just feel like that? Like I know he's alive, of course. I believe it. I wear a cross. I sing the songs. I do the stuff. But, but Jesus is not, you don't understand. I, I'm in high school. I go to Liberty. Jesus is not at Liberty. Come on Monday. <laughs> and if you ever feel like that, you are not alone because the disciples we're putting, Jesus forced them to go where he physically was not. He made them go out there. And there is an object lesson in that, in that there are seasons of life for us where we go out, we do what Jesus said to do, and it feels as though Jesus is far away. But we need to know this. At the right time, when we are in the darkest hour, 3 to 6 a.m., they've been rowing for hours, you want to talk about arms. You want to talk about exhaustion, frustration, Jesus, at the right time, steps down, steps in, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, this is a story about God, but this is also a story about us. It's so relatable. And Mark's readers, they, they knew what the Sea of Galilee was like. They knew what it was like to be in storms and situations. And are circumstances different? Yeah, but we understand and we can relate. Have you ever gone out to do something that you really believed was God's? plan for your life, God's desire for your life, and feel like you're just rowing against the motion, and you're like, you're rowing, I'm rowing, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying, and, and Jesus is saying, go east, but the wind is pushing me west, and Jesus is saying, do this, but all the doors seem to be closing, and it's dark, and I'm tired, and I'm alone. Maybe I'm the only person that goes through these seasons. Uh, we were living here in Portland, my wife and I, and clear as day, um, I got this invitation out of the blue uh, to move to Colorado Springs, to be a part of something that was just well beyond my experience, well beyond anything I had done to deserve. It was a huge opportunity uh, to serve God with a great organization. 
and help them do evangelism better. And so it was like, I was like, there's no possible way, but God opened the door. We felt like God clearly called us to go. And then we moved to Colorado Springs and Carmen gets pregnant. Don't know how that happened, but you know, like, and, and now we've got two kids. We'd already had Jonah. Jonah, I do know how that happened. Yeah, I was there. And, um, and trouble with having your own child in, in church. And so, I'm so in trouble now. Oh, gosh. And so, so we have two kids, and it felt like we were in Colorado for a couple years. It felt like I was rowing and rowing and rowing and not getting to where God wanted me to go. And I, and I was stressed out and tired and traveling like a madman and doing so much. And, I, and yeah, like God was opening these doors, and I sensed his presence but yet, I just, I just feel like I, I'm never going to get there. And then a couple of years into it, I realized, wow, I can't do this anymore. Like, I was just going too hard, going too fast. And like, okay, Lord, I, something, we missed you. Something's wrong. I, we're, 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 we're traveling, we're working, and, and it's, this is not what you call us to. And so we, we pray, and then we realize, like, wow, that season's coming to an end. And like, where do we end up next? And we prayed and it seemed like, yeah, go to Charlotte. Carmen's family lives in Charlotte and two little kids and I'm traveling and this would be good for the family. And we moved there and then, and then we settle in and things are good. And, but then it gets to a point where we're just rowing and rowing and rowing and rowing. And next thing you know, I'm making a, a multiple years short, but we end up getting like phone call from Phil Comer and, and Solid Rock and hey, would you move back to Portland? I'm like, what? You know, like, seasons of years of moments of excitement, but then moments of wind and moments of frustration. I have been there. And yet, the beautiful thing that uh, the Scripture teaches and human experience provides is that in those moments, we can take courage and we don't have to be afraid. It's not always a straight line from where they are to Bethsaida. It's not always a Go from here and go straight east. I keep mixing up my east and west here. Go straight east. Sometimes the Lord allows the wind to blow us, and it seems like we're off course. And in this case, they end up in a totally different city. And I'm here to remind you and remind myself that if we choose to follow Jesus, it may not always seem like a straight line, and he doesn't keep us from the wind, and he doesn't take us out of the storm. Instead, he comes into it, and he's with us, and he rose with us, and he gets us to where we need to be. And wherever we end up, you know, some of you are like, Jose, I never thought I'd end up here. I never thought this would happen to me. I never thought I'd be in this job. I never thought I'd go through that experience. Let me tell you, if you hold on to Jesus Christ, and you call on him, even in the 3 to 6 a.m. hour, you feel like you can't make it, you feel like you're struggling, Jesus will be there with you. And he will, in that moment, not only do good for you, he stopped the waves, which isn't a bad deal if you're rowing, but he'll also take that situation and bless the people around you. Notice, they end up at Gennesaret, and they have this huge opportunity to bless all of these people who are broken and in need, and the disciples are there with him. You may feel like you've gone sideways, but the good news of the kingdom of God is as long as we're inviting Jesus Christ, so to speak, into the boat, into the situation. Now, there are times when we're tossed around because we ignore Jesus. Would you agree? Not every situation is, well, this is Jesus' will for my life. Listen, if you disobey all that God's commanded and you ignore God and you don't pray and you don't seek godly counsel and you don't listen to the Holy Spirit's voice and you don't choose to obey the things you know to do 
and you end up blown by the sea, Jesus is there and Jesus forgives. Would you agree? But we can't blame Jesus for those storms. Those are storms that are self-inflicted. But even in that, the disciples, this is so beautiful, their hearts are hardened. They don't get it. Here's some good news. This is a story about God, but it's a story about us because nowhere does Jesus rebuke the disciples for their hard hearts. At least not here. Later on, he will. And isn't that encouraging? Right now, if you're sitting here and you're like, you're confused about where you're headed and what God wants for you and what to do next. If your heart is hard and callous, Jesus even works through that. He doesn't rebuke them. He loves them. He's with them. He guides them along. Uh, hardness of heart. It's funny, these parallels here. Jesus, uh, Moses is in the mountain and God passes by. Uh, Pharaoh in Exodus uh, account, the one who was against God, his heart was what? Hardened. Later on in the gospel, we're going to see the Pharisees, the guys opposed to Jesus, their hearts were hardened. Mark tells us at the moment where Jesus steps in, it's not like they even had it all together. They didn't understand the fullness of the, the loaves. They didn't understand that Jesus is God's Messiah, that, that if you want to know who God is, just look at this person, Jesus. But even in that, Jesus works despite them. Now, the response should be faith, trust, courage. So tonight, if you're, you have been hardened of heart some, for some reason, and you don't get it all together, the right response to hearing something like this is to say, Jesus Christ, I see you. I see you for who you are. I see for you for what you want to do, and I want to follow you. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. A couple of... Um, observations that may be helpful for us as we try to tease this out. I think number one is that Jesus is patient. He's patient with us. He's patient with you. And as I look back now, it's amazing. I see and understand the Colorado time. I was having lunch with a good buddy of mine, Greg Steer, who has a ministry called Dare to Share, and he trains students all around the country in helping students share their faith. I was having lunch with him, and he was in Colorado Springs, that I got this great relationship with Greg and started traveling with him. God bless you, by the way. And um, I started traveling with him. And, and that wouldn't have happened if I wasn't in Colorado Springs. I see all that God did in our family, in our extended family, during our season in Charlotte. I got really involved in our local church. I joined the teaching team. And, and that season really prepared me, now that I think about it, for us coming back to Portland. When we came back to Portland, there was no sunset. There was no idea of this. I had no idea I'd be here right now. But I look back, not the, the disciples, I bet, they got the loaves post the resurrection. When Jesus rose again, they got it. And, and, and they got the wind and the waves and the, the sea after the resurrection. They got it. So you don't have to figure it all out now. But if you're in the middle of it, what do we do? We take courage. It is I, ego and me. It is God in Jesus who's with us. And we don't be afraid. God is patient with us. So tonight, you're afraid. Now, I'm not saying, are you wondering what's going to happen next? All of us are wondering, aren't we? If I choose to follow Jesus, what will that mean? There is a natural tendency for us to, we weigh out the option. We're Americans. If I do this, what will happen if I do that? You know, that, and that's natural. But, but based on what we know and based on who God is, God is, do we choose fear over God's presence? 
And tonight we get the opportunity again to go from fear to faith in a Jesus who is right here. Jesus is patient. And let me say this with encouragement. He has been patient with you. And even with your own struggles, your doubts, your worries, your wonders, he hasn't forgotten about you. He's not here to rebuke you. He's here to pull you along and say, I'm here. Now trust me. Tonight will we respond in trust. And the second thing that we see, not only is Jesus patient, but Jesus brings good out of the storm. I hate going through hard times. I hate it. I hate wondering late at night, God, what have I gotten myself into? Have I missed it? But I do know this. When I find myself in a tumultuous situation, I most often see Jesus' hand more clearly. You take away storms, you take away trials, you take away troubles from my life. Would I trust Jesus? <laughs> no. I'd love to say I would, but I gotta be honest. It is in my desperation where I cry out desperately for Jesus. And so Jesus may have you in a storm right now. He may be allowing you to row and row and row and you wonder and you're, you're worried, but Jesus is calling you to trust him. Take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. So, so what do we do? Finally, before we uh, go to the table and we worship, there are two imperatives. Fancy word, commands. When I look at the text, I look at two different things. And when you're reading the Bible, you look at two things. What are indicatives and what are imperatives? What are indicatives? What are things about me in this text? What are things in the Bible that speak to who I am? And then I look for what are things that speak to what I'm called to do? Uh, now, if you're studying the text, you begin to look at these words, and in Greek, it's very clear. Here, there are two commands by Jesus that we are told to do. And they're right here. Number one, have courage or take courage. The definition of courage is to be firm or resolute in the face of danger. To be firm or resolute in the face of danger. Jesus says to his crew, in the middle of this horrible situation, be firm and be resolute. Don't worry, I am with you. And so the call tonight is to courage. In the middle of the storm, they're not on the shore yet. They don't know what's going to happen next. But if Jesus is real and Jesus is with you, we're called to take courage. And then the second one is do not be afraid. Don't be frightened. Because fear is more than a feeling, my friend. Fear is a choice. In light of who Jesus is, he is the Son of God. He is God himself. You want to know what God's like? Just look at Jesus. In light of who Jesus is, are you still choosing to let fear control your life? Are you still choosing to let your circumstance or the storm dictate your response? Or will you listen to Jesus, to his disciples? Take courage. Be firm. Be resolute in the middle of this. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Fear is a choice. And so is faith. And so tonight, as we, as we come to the table, as we remember the bread and the cup, as we think about Jesus, you can respond in faith. So tonight, I guess the real question is, what storm are you going through? What struggle are you facing? What temptation keeps knocking on your door day in and day out? What circumstance has you overwhelmed? What are you going through? Tonight, when we come to the table, let's come with our own honesty and confess. If your heart is hard tonight, confess it and say, God, I've been stubborn. I've been lazy. I've been whatever. Let's be honest. But then let's receive. 
Jesus is not rebuking us. He's inviting us to be courageous.